Friends and travelers, however you've arrived, I bid you welcome. Here at Let's Be Frank, we're about lives, and above all, living well. I don't suspect a podcast hosted by Benjamin Franklin could be about anything else. In my lifetime, I pursued the practice of moral improvement like a science, recording my successes, and yes, oftentimes reveling in my failings. It's my genuine hope, with our weekly almanac, to feed to a curious world delicious morsels of history in quick and concise installments, perfect for a nice sit in your favorite chair, a morning walk to work. At the end of each installment, I like to wrap it all up in a neat little parcel with a lesson you can apply to your own life, inspired by the events, personalities, and ideas covered in each episode. So sit back, relax, and together, let's make history. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for a curious mind with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. My dear friends, season two continues with the second installment in this season's through line, Spilling Tea. But before we begin, we have one small bit of housekeeping. So let's waste no time with pleasantries and get right to it. My dear friends, the end of October is right around the corner. Dear listener, I understand in your time, the modern fashion is to spend the last day of the month gallivanting in ghoulish costumes, impersonating your favorite personalities, and in general, making merry with tricks, treats, and everything in between. Now, I'm particularly partial to wearing a costume seeing as I spend the majority of my 365 days a year doing just that. So I took it upon myself to formulate a small contest, a way for all of us to partake in the merriment of the season. Now we here at Let's Be Frank have decided we want to be a part of your Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, and have decided that this Halloween we're going to host a little contest. And so, without further ado... We're bringing you the first ever Dress Like a Benjamin Halloween Costume Contest. Oh, this is good. Settle in for it. Dear listener, do you happen to favor your favorite founding father in appearance? Have a pet that looks particularly good in spectacles? Have some buckled shoes in your closet that you've been waiting for the opportunity to bring out? Well, this opportunity is present. Now, we want to see you, your families, your children, your pets' best impressions of yours truly. We want to see you dress like Dr. Benjamin Franklin this Halloween and are putting money on the table to see it happen. And so, my dear friends, put together your best Benjamin Franklin costume, upload it on social media using the hashtag DressLikeABenjamin. Don't forget to tag us at Let's Be Frank on Instagram and TikTok. And let's make this Halloween the most historic Halloween ever. Now, we'll be taking submissions through Friday, November 3rd, and announcing our winner on Monday, November 6th. Now, what does our winner receive, you ask? Well, what else but a portrait of Benjamin Franklin in cash? A $100 bill from your humble host? 
and of course, eternal bragging rights. Now spread the word about this contest. Get it trending on social media. Let's enlist an army, nay, a legion of Franklin lookalikes to haunt the streets of America this Halloween. Oh, I get chills just thinking about it. Now, having made this announcement, we can get to today's installment. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is part two of the dramatic events that led to one of America's most infamous acts of civil disobedience, vandalism and protest, the Boston Tea Party. So, my dear friends... Sit back, grab a cup, let your imaginations steep, and let's get ready to spill. This week's episode will explore four primary sources, carefully edited to conserve time and keep meaning, to explore what followed after the Stamp Act, which we covered in Part 1. The climax of today's installment will share the first blood spilled in the conflict with our mother country and, if I do my job right, will leave you seeing clearer and thinking deeper. When we last spilled, in part one, we talked about the Stamp Act and its political implications across the colonies. For part two, we're going to swoop down from our bird's eye view and place ourselves thick in the middle of the city that our pageantry is taking place within, the city of Boston. In part one, I spoke of Virginia and Pennsylvania's response to the Stamp Act, However, the people of my native Boston chose to voice their displeasure in more, shall we say, kinetic than poetic fashion. By the summer of 1765, tensions had grown between the people of Boston and the imposed policies by the British government. On the night of August 26, 1765, those policies would find a kind of representative for the colonists' wrath in the form of Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson. What began as a protest by the infant Sons of Liberty, circling around a bonfire upon King Street, drinking and voicing their displeasure of the present policies of the present government, would eventually, my friends, grow and become an alcohol-fueled riot that would end in fire, ruin, and broken trust upon both sides. William Gordon will write an account of what transpired that night, of that act of protest, of that act of vandalism, of what happens when a group of angry people get together, grow angrier, and choose violence. He writes, The first movers in the affair meant mainly an assault on the house of the deputy register, who, by various malpractices, had made himself highly obnoxious to persons doing business in his office. But mobs, once raised, soon become ungovernable by new and large accessions, and extend beyond their intentions, far beyond those of the original instigators. Crafty men may intermix with them when they are much heated, and direct the mob to do something other than their original intent. The rioters would move from place to place, house to house. The boiling tempers would eventually carry over to the governor's mansion. An axe was taken to the front door, every window smashed as the legion of rioters poured within. 
my friends, no personal effect, clothes, silver, art, was safe from the protesters' pilfering and wrathful fingers. Now, Governor Hutchinson was not present in the house. He had the good wisdom of departing before the rioters arrived, scampering and hiding in his own gardens before taking shelter in a nearby house. Now, by dawn's light, one of the best-finished houses in the province had nothing remaining but bare walls and floors. Gentlemen of the army who have seen towns sacked by an enemy declare they never saw such fury. Well, needless to say... Hutchinson had hurt feelings about the whole affair, wrote immediately to Parliament that some greater force was necessary to compel the frustrations and tempers rising in Boston. Uh, one of the people he would write to would be yours truly, sending me a letter while I sat in England. Uh, dear sir, the grievous loss I have sustained in consequences of the resentment of the people against the stamp duty and the refusal of the assembly to make any compensation has obliged me to lay my case before his majesty and to pray for relief. Indeed, the loss is heavier than I am able to bear. I hope you will think my prayer reasonable, and if you should, I ask your friendship in promoting a compensation. I cannot think I shall fail of success." No servant of the crown will have firmness enough to do his duty in the colonies if they are liable to be thus punished for it, and can have no redress. Indeed, the general voice here has been that my loss ought to be made good. Everybody at first was struck with horror, but my case is now stale and looked upon with more indifference. Perhaps I shall have the same fate in England, if there should be any delay there, or if nothing more can be obtained than a requisition to the government." I shall always be a sufferer. These increased hostilities would only be made worse by the Quartering Act of 1765. By 1770, there was one soldier for every six colonists within the city. The two factions, living together back to back, limb to limb, ear to ear, eye to eye. One, a foreign body fixed on maintaining order and enforcing law. The other, a people who saw their home every day growing more occupied, their autonomy more questioned, their safety endangered. These tensions would only distance the relations between Massachusetts and the Crown, and would lead to the climax of this particular installment of Spilling Tea. So, my friends, let's leave 1765 behind. Let's set the politics aside. Let's jump to March of 1770, where conflict is brewing that will leave the streets running red with blood. The following is a primary source account of what will come to be known as the Boston Massacre. An account of a late military massacre at Boston, or the consequences of quartering troops in a populous town. Boston, March 12, 1770. The town of Boston affords a recent and melancholy demonstration of the destructive consequences of quartering troops among citizens in time of peace, under a pretense of supporting the laws and aiding civil authority. Every considerate and unprejudiced person among us was deeply impressed with the apprehension of these consequences when it was known that a number of regiments were ordered to this town under such a pretext. But in reality, 
to enforce oppressive measures, to awe and control the legislative as well as executive powers of the province, and to quell a spirit of liberty, which, however it may have been basely and even ridiculed by some, would do honor to any age or country. A few persons among us had determined to use all their influence to procure so destructive a measure with a view to their securely enjoying the profits of an American revenue, and unhappily both for Britain and this country, they found means to effect it. Our readers will doubtless expect a circumstantial account of the tragical affair on Monday night last, but they hope they will excuse our being so particular as we should have been had we not seen that the town was intending an inquiry and full representation thereof. On the evening of Monday, being the fifth current, several soldiers of the 29th Regiment were seen parading the streets with their drawn cutlasses. A few minutes after nine o'clock, four youths named Edward Archbald, William Merchant, Francis Archbald, and John Leach, Jr., came down Cornhill together and separated at Dr. Loring's corner, the two former were passing the narrow alley leading to Murray's barrack, in which was a soldier brandishing a sword of uncommon size against the walls, but of which he struck fire plentifully. A person of mean countenance armed with a large club bore him company. Edward Archbald admonished Mr. Merchant to take care of the sword, of which the soldier turned round and struck Archbald on the arm, then pushed at that armpit and grazed the skin. Merchant then struck the soldier with a short stick he had, and the other person ran to the barrack and brought with him two soldiers, one armed with a pair of tongs, the other with a shovel. He with the tongs pursued Archbald back through the alley, collared him, and laid him over the head with the tongs. The noise brought people together, and John Hicks, a young lad, coming up, knocked the soldier down, but let him get up again and more lads gathering drove them back to the barrack where the boys stood sometimes as it were to keep them in. In less than a minute, ten or twelve of them came out with drawn cutlasses, clubs, and bayonets, and set upon the med boys and young folks, who stood them a little while but finding the inequality of their equipment dispersed. On hearing the noise, one Samuel Atwood came up to see what was the matter, and entering the alley from the dock square heard the latter part of the combat, and when the boys dispersed, he met the ten or twelve soldiers, aforesaid, rushing down the alley towards the square, and asked them if they intended to murder the people. They answered, Yes, by God, root and branch. With that, one of them struck Mr. Atwood with a club, which was repeated by another, and being he turned to go off, received a wound on the left shoulder, which reached the bone and gave him much pain. Retreating a few steps, Mr. Atwood met two officers, and said, "'Gentlemen, what is the matter?' They answered, "'You'll see by and by.' Immediately, after those heroes appeared in the square, asking, "'Where were the boogers? Where were the cowards?' But notwithstanding their fierceness to naked men, one of them advanced towards a youth who had split of a raw stave in his hand, and said, "'Damn them, here is one of them.' But the young man, seeing a person near him with a drawn sword and a good cane ready to support him, held up his stave in defiance, and they quietly passed by him, up the little alley by Mr. Silsby's to King Street, where they attacked single and unarmed persons till they raised much clamor, and then turned down Cornhill Street, insulting all they met in like manner and pursuing some to their very doors. 
thirty or forty persons, mostly lads, being by this means gathered in King Street, Captain Preston, with a party of men with charged bayonets, came from the main guard to the commissioner's house. The soldiers, pushing their bayonets, crying, Make way! They took place by the custom house, and continuing to push to drive the people off, pricked some in several places, on which they were clamorous, and, it is said, threw snowballs. On this, the captain commanded them to fire, and more snowballs coming he again said, Damn you, fire! Be the consequence what it will. One soldier then fired, and a townsman with a cudgel struck him over the hands with such force that he dropped his firelock, and rushing forward aimed a blow at the captain's head, which grazed hat and fell pretty heavily upon his arm. However, the soldiers continued the fire successively, till eight, or as some say, eleven guns were discharged. By this fatal maneuver, three men were laid dead on the spot, and two more struggling for life, but what showed a degree of cruelty unknown to British troops, at least since the House of Hanover had directed their operations, was an attempt to fire upon or push with their bayonets the persons who undertook to remove the slain and wounded. Mr. Benjamin Lee, now undertaker in Delft Manufactory, came up and after some conversation with Captain Preston relative to his conduct in the affair, advised him to draw off his men, with which he complied. The dead are Mr. Samuel Gray, Crispus Attucks, Mr. James Caldwell, Mr. Samuel Maverick, Christopher Monk, John Clark, Mr. Edward Payne, Mr. John Green, Mr. Robert Pattinson, Mr. Patrick Carr, David Parker. The people were immediately alarmed with the report of this horrid massacre. The bells were set a-ringing, and great numbers soon assembled at the place where this tragical scene had been acted. Their feelings may be better conceived than expressed, and while some were taking care of the dead and wounded, the rest were in consultation what to do in these dreadful circumstances. But so little intimidated were they, notwithstanding, their being within a few yards of the main guard and seeing the 29th Regiment under arms and drawn up in King Street, that they kept their station and appeared, as an officer of rank expressed it, ready to run upon the very muzzles of their muskets. Tuesday morning presented a most shocking scene, the blood of our fellow citizens running like water through King Street, and the merchants' exchange, the principal spot of the military parade for about eighteen months past. Our blood might also be tracked up to the head of Long Lane and through diverse other streets and passages. Well, news of the massacre reaches England fairly quickly. How do I react to it? In a very long letter to Reverend Samuel Cooper, I'll speak of my sanguine hopes for the policies of Parliament to align with our sense of justice. And towards the end of that letter, I'll write that I hope that before this time those detestable murders have quitted your province, and that the spirit of industry and frugality continues and increases with sincerest esteem and affection. I am, dear sir, your most obedient and humble servant, Benjamin Franklin. And so, my friends, our difference of economy has become a matter of bloodshed, one that will propel us to our finale ultimo, the inciting act of vandalism that would take this whole affair from the revolution of a city to the revolution of a continent. The story for now remains to be continued.
We'll pick it up again in Spilling Tea, Part 3. So what lesson can we derive from today's installment to these bloody times and bloody acts? When an angry person gathers with another, reason diminishes as passion rises. And unless those passions are quelled, people will do in crowds what they never would have thought to do alone. Together, my friends, we can do wonders. And together, my friends, we can also commit blunders. Whatever is begun in anger ends in shame. And so, my beloved listeners, today I charge you to be the voice in the crowd that errs towards justice, wisdom, and above all, goodness. It is a grand mistake to think of being great without goodness, and I pronounce it as certain that there never was truly a great man that was not at the same time truly virtuous. So today, my beloved friends, be great and be good. And that's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resource materials and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal section at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Facebook at Let's Be Frank and Instagram at bfranklinlive. And finally, dear listener... Spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well, and always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.